Do you have any areas in your life where you feel a bit stuck and would really like to figure out what to do next? Do you wish you regularly had the time to be able to think stuff through? And how much more successful and happy do you think you could be if you were able to get a plan to tackle what you wanted in life and get the first steps nailed? Welcome to another episode of You Are Not A Frog, self-coaching for success. And I'm joined by Dr. Karen Castile. She's an ex-NHS chief executive and a leadership coach and expert in self-coaching. We explore how we can take control and help ourselves get unstuck without having to spend time and money on coaching. Now, as an executive coach myself, I know how transformational coaching can be, but many of us don't have the time or resources to access it, or we want to be able to work on our smaller goals in between coaching sessions. So Karen and I explore how self-coaching works and how you can fit it into your weekly routine and the power of asking yourself the right questions. So listen, if you want to know how to get started with self-coaching why developing your own life questions can be so powerful and why getting advice from other people often just doesn't work. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for GPs, doctors and other busy professionals in high-stress jobs. Even before the coronavirus crisis, many of us were feeling stressed and one crisis away from not coping. We felt like frogs in boiling water, overwhelmed and exhausted. But this has crept up on us slowly, so we hardly notice the extra long days becoming the norm. And let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices. Stay and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog, and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your own destiny and to craft your life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Morris, GP turned executive coach and specialist in resilience at work. I work with doctors and other organisations all over the country to help professionals and their teams beat stress and take control of their work. I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this so that together we can take back control to survive and thrive in our work and lives. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. It's really great to have with me on the podcast today, Dr. Karen Castile, OBE. Now, Karen is an executive and leadership coach. So hi, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Rachel. It's great to be here and thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, I, I think you've got a lot of really fascinating stuff that's going to be really helpful for our listeners. But before we go any further, could you just tell us a little bit about, about who you are, about your background and about what you're doing at the moment? Okay. Well, I'm one of those people who've done lots and lots of jobs and and had lots of career changes throughout my life. And so primarily I was in healthcare. I was um, an emergency nurse for quite a while. And then I moved on to being a midwife. 
then I went back to emergency nursing and kind of started to feel I wanted to do more for more than one person, which is the patient in front of you. So I started to migrate up the greasy management pole until I got into very senior positions in mostly in big hospital trusts. And then I did some regional jobs and I did a nas- some national roles as well, working across England. And eventually I ended up back in acute trusts working on hospital boards. So I've been an executive probably in about eight different executive positions. I've moved around the board table too, which is very interesting. Most people tend to stay with one portfolio, but I've done quite a few different executive jobs. Culminating in, I became chief executive of a very big teaching hospital in the UK. And then I decided I wanted to do something different. So I did some training and got some qualifications in coaching. So I became an executive and leadership coach, which now I really, really enjoy. Mm. Wow, that's a really amazing, varied career. And like you said, yeah, it's, it's not usual for someone to have all those different experiences of the different positions on the executive board, as well as having come through, you know, working on the front line as a midwife, as an emergency nurse, all that sort of stuff as well. So it's brilliant to have you because you've got the perspective from, from both sides, haven't you? Yes. And and also I've got some commercial experience as well. So before I did all my NHS work, I worked in the commercial sector. I like to say I worked in bodybuilding, but actually it was commercial vehicle bodybuilding. (laughs) (laughs) So so not quite as excited as a a real bodybuilder. But anyway, I learned a lot about production and manufacturing and working in big companies. And so that was different, too. That's why I say, you know, I've, I've, I've moved around quite a bit until I kind of settled with, with where my passion was. That must have been really fascinating to come into the NHS after having worked in a sort of production type industry. Were you fairly shocked at inefficiencies in the NHS or what was your sort of big impression moving into that from, from the commercial world? In a word, yes. I was shocked at how difficult it was to make change happen in the NHS In companies, they say, let's do it, and everybody just gets on with it because that's what you're paid to do. But in the NHS, it's far more about partnership, collaboration, winning people over, influencing people. There's there's so much more. And persuading those above you as well as those below you that it's a good idea, whatever the change is. So I found it very slow to make any changes happen in the NHS. Very difficult. But it can happen with the right people and the right attitudes. Um, And that's why some of the national work I did was around change and making change happen. And indeed, that was my PhD, making change happen in the NHS. So it kind of gave, yeah, yeah, it was where my interest came about. How would you get it to happen in such a massive, complex organisation with very, very intelligent, key professionals, all of whom had opinions? Mm. Wow. In middle, in a minute, we're going to get onto the, the topic of this podcast, but that's, that's really fascinating. Have you got any key take home messages from your PhD? What did you discover? I guess, well, I discovered that there's a kind of tripartite arrangement that needs to be in place if you want something to change. And that is, you need the key professionals like clinicians to be up for it, involved, engaged, and part of making it happen. Mm -hmm. So usually a very senior doctor, nurse or 
physio or whoever really gung-ho about that this is the right thing to do because it's better for patients and better for the the people they serve. Mm -hmm. The second part of that tripartite arrangement is you need a very senior manager who can authorize it, tick it off and give you the headroom to make it happen. Mm. Because without that, it can be blocked and stopped from above. So usually a board member. And the third part of the tripartite arrangement is to have somebody who's a jobbing project manager, hands-on person who can get stuff to happen on a day-to-day basis because the clinicians are too busy, the senior managers have got other things that they're involved in. So you need a a permanent full-time person whose job it is to, to get stuff to happen. And those three working closely together and in agreement is what makes change happen, is what I found with some of the work I did. And I worked with... On my PhD, it included every acute hospital in England. So it was it was quite a big piece of work. Well, and that, I mean, looking at that, you you think, actually, yeah, that, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? An engaged clinician, a senior manager can find stuff off and a jobbing person on the ground. But so often we don't have those three things in place, do we? No, we don't. And clinicians are busy people and they try to do it themselves and it and it, it can't be so. They, they've got other things to do. Likewise with the senior manager, they're so busy trying to, you know, create the headroom for the piece of work to happen, but they've got other things on their agenda too. So yeah, it does need those three things to come together in in a kind of harmony. Yeah, I think that that speaks to the whole delegation piece, doesn't it? That often clinicians are worried about delegating to to people because they think they need to do everything themselves. But actually, this is a really great message that actually you can delegate to someone who's hardworking and really competent as long as they have the adequate senior support behind them, sort of cheering them on and saying, we're here for you and we'll we'll push things through at a a senior level, at a board level with whatever you need. And actually, often people, it's not their ability that's lacking. It's the senior support and the sign-off that's lacking. So I think I want to up-talk delegation and it empowers people who, who you delegate to as well, makes them feel engaged and involved and excited about what they're doing. Yeah, it's funny, you know, whatever guest I have on this podcast, we always end up talking about delegation. It's so interesting. Wow. <laughs> well, it's such, I just, I think it's the way that we will become resilient and sustainable, that, our, that jobs can be sustainable. And it's like you said, we worry about delegating because we think it shows that we're not capable or we're too overwhelmed or whatever but actually it's really good for for not only you because you get some of the work off your hands but the person that's being delegated to and I've been so grateful to be that person who is delegated to to give me some more opportunities and some you know some 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 interest and it's just developed me. A lot of professionals struggle with delegation they see it as somehow it's a it shows some form of weakness. But it takes planning. And I think that's where this stuff around coaching comes in because a lot of times when I'm, I'm got one-to-one coaching clients and I wonder if this is your experience, a lot of the conversation is how do we manage our teams and how do I shed some of my work because I'm just busy and overwhelmed and um, delegation is the, is the key to that. But people just have been so overwhelmed. They haven't had time to think about it. And one of the reasons I wanted, um, really wanted you to come on the podcast, Karen, is that not only are you a, a brilliant one-to-one coach, but you've also written a book about self-coaching. So can you tell me a little bit about what is self-coaching? 
Well, self-coaching has been around for a long, long time, actually. People think it's new and it's not. So self-coaching is, it's really a mindset. It's a way of thinking and being that means that when you have issues in your world, whether it's a a new challenge or something you want to do or to achieve or create, um, or even if it's some huge aspirational goal that you want to get to, self-coaching is a way of helping yourself to get there. And it's completely founded on the belief that you actually have the answers to your own problems as an adult. Adults learn by thinking through things themselves and doing for themselves. And rarely does it work if we give adults advice. I mean, my father's in his 80s and he still gives me advice and it kind of makes me cringe when he does (laughs) because, you know, I'm a grown woman and I can even on little things, he'll give me advice. It doesn't work with adults. So self-coaching is a way of a mindset of trying to ask yourself some key questions when you have a dilemma or a challenge or problem to help you work your way through it in a structured way. But it's difficult and it's like anything, it's a skill and skills take time to learn. So it's practice, practice, practice that gets you better at it. So at first it might feel difficult, but people after they've been doing it a while, I have some key questions I ask myself when I have dilemmas or decisions to make. And there's a few key questions that get me on the path to coming up with what the options might be for me. That's a bit of a long-winded way of saying what self-coaching yeah. is, but it's it's not no different than coaching except you're doing it for yourself. And does it, in a minute, I'm going to ask you what your key questions are because I'm fascinated. Does doing it for yourself really work? Don't you need somebody in front of you asking you the questions? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. So, You don't need someone in front of you. There are some questions that will get you going with a bit different train of thought, a better train of thought. Some new trains of thought will help you to be more creative in your thinking. But clearly, if you have someone in front of you or with you, albeit on, you know, a a virtual system, then they can ask you different questions that you perhaps weren't expecting and they can make a paradigm shift with you or help you to get a paradigm shift because they can ask you something that you perhaps wouldn't have thought of asking yourself. So yes, one-to-one coaching is, it can be absolutely life-changing to work with a qualified coach, but not everybody has the opportunity or the time or the resource or sometimes the desire to um, book sessions with a coach and to fix themselves to the time and the place and the how Not everybody has the opportunity to do that. And I also found I was doing quite a lot of pro bono work for the region. And what I found is that the people that had a little bit of a lift because they couldn't afford it for themselves or their organization couldn't pay for it, it was helpful. And part of what I try to do is build a little bit of capability for them before they leave me when the sessions are finished so that they can start to ask themselves similar types of questions. So it's not quite as the same as one-to-one coaching, but it can still be very, very helpful to people with busy lives when your brain is so full of stuff that you can't sort the wheat from the chaff really and you can't get to the crux of the matter because you're 
so busy and so overwhelmed with the thoughts in your head. So it certainly helps you to sort things out and to think it through in a a more structured way. And I can see the power of that because I think, you know, with one-to-one executive coaching is really powerful. I'm a executive coach myself. I had coaching, which just sort of got me leaps and bounds ahead, you know, 18 months ahead of where I would have been if I'd have sort of just thought about about it myself. But I know that organizing coaching sessions and getting the time to do them can be quite onerous and it takes quite a lot of emotional investment and thinking through and you know so it's absolutely brilliant but you need to be very committed to it and be able to afford it etc although the good news is there's quite a lot of free coaching that is out there particularly for people in healthcare at the moment but yeah some some coaching that you can do yourself just for five or ten minutes when you're feeling stuck about something or just want to think through for the week can be really, really powerful. And in fact, I read, I think I read a, it was either a podcast or a LinkedIn blog. And some somebody made a suggestion that if you have an issue that you want to work out, or you're just feeling a bit stuck, you just spend 10 minutes on your own and you just write down all the questions that you have about this issue. What do you need to know? So just brainstorm everything that's bothering you that you don't know. And then you spend another 10 minutes writing down the answers. And um, I've done that on a couple of occasions. And oh my, it's, it's always had some breakthrough will come up with, oh, that's what I do. I need to do next. So that's just a very sort of mini type of self-coaching, I guess. But then what you've yes. done yes. very brilliantly is write a whole handbook with questions and stuff that you can ask about, you know, that you can ask yourself. You've actually given us a structure that we can use for self-coaching and doing it in a much more structured manner, which I think is a genius idea. Well, hopefully. And what I say in, in the book is that you know, the questions I present are, they're quite well researched. So they've come from a lot of coaching manuals about what are good questions to ask. But they're not the end, the be all and end all. So they're a starting point for people who may have even better questions for themselves. They may think of even better questions, particularly context receptive questions that talk to the topic that they're thinking about. So it's to help people get get started really with it and then to develop their own questions. And I put plenty of space in the book so that if they think of a good question for themselves, that it may live with them for life, that question. You know, Mm. sometimes somebody will say something to you and you'll think, wow, that is really making me think in a different way. And so that's the power of, of having a set of questions to get you going when you don't really know what kind of questions to ask. But the questions that spin off from that for yourself are probably even more powerful, to be honest. Mm. That's interesting because in a previous podcast, I was talking to Dr. Serena Chibber and she recalls the coaching session she had uh, when the coach asked her, they asked her, "Okay, Serena, you've told us a lot about what's on your to do list. What's on your to be list? And she said that question was transformational for her. And now whenever she's stuck, that's the question she always asks herself. Brilliant. I'm going to steal that. I'm I'm writing it down. It's good, isn't it? It's a really good question. But there are always some questions that, Mm. yes, that that just will completely deeply resonate, resonate with the person that will help them get clear. So Karen, what what are your key questions that you you would suggest people ask themselves if they want to do some self-coaching? Well, I'll tell you the first one. And the first one, they're not in any order, but the first one is my fantastic mentor said to me once. And I repeat this to my clients as well, but but I give it to them in a context that they understand. 
Um, I was my mentor was Professor Aidan Halligan. I don't know if you know him. He was an amazing professor of medicine. He was um, an obstetrician by background. And I used to meet with him about once a month and it was really coaching, but he called it mentorship. So I went as a mentor. And I think I was in a rant one day about everything that was wrong, going wrong in my world and how, uh, how I just couldn't cope. And it was all too much and blah, blah, blah. And he said he was a lovely, gentle Irishman. And he said to me, so, Karen, just answer one question for me. Tell me how many babies died in all of this? And I said, babies? What do you mean? No babies died. He said, oh, thank goodness for that, because in my world, the worst thing that can happen is when a baby dies. And it sounds like at least 10 must have died the way you're describing it. And so what he was saying, what he was saying is, for goodness sake, you know, I was catastrophizing. Clearly, I was catastrophizing. So now if I'm really feeling stressed and overwhelmed, I say, come on, Karen, how many babies have died? None. (laughs) Because mostly, most of our day-to-day problems are not at that level, but we escalate them to that level. Mm. So that that's one, but that isn't my favorite one. My favorite one, if I want to achieve something or do something or get somewhere or create something, the best one for me is, so what is it you're actually trying to achieve? What outcome are you looking for? Because I used to think in process, probably because I did a lot of process jobs nationally to try and help the NHS be better at process. So it helped me to stop thinking in processes and start thinking in what's the outcome you're looking for? What's the end goal? What's the vision that you want to get to? And so for me, the words I use in my head are what outcome are you looking for, Karen? And then once I know that, the rest, the process steps are more easy to slot in. I get it. You'll push for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops top five episodes sorry and leap into your happiest thriving self again just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz that is such and then, a helpful question isn't it the, 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 they, they, they use that in the model for improvement for me in, in, in call, you yes know, they what, do they do to, what are you trying to achieve how are you going to get there indeed yeah. yes yeah, and it's so relevant to all sorts of areas of life you know I I have teenagers at the moment and you know it's challenging you know they are lovely but there are some things that are quite challenging and you just find yourself nagging them all the time or you know have you done this and then just asking yourself you know I'm really worried about this and maybe the amount of screen time or that and you think actually what outcome am I trying to achieve (laughs) is it to sometimes it feels like I just want to stop them being on screens I want to stop them but actually no I don't I want them to achieve them being a balanced, nice human being without an addiction or something like that. And it just, it, it helps bring you back to actually, and it, well, it helps spur you into action, doesn't it? And, and put you on the right route. Otherwise we're just regularly going off on all the, all, all the wrong things and it can be quite confusing. So that, that's really powerful. 
Yes, and, and I think language is important. So for some people, that language might may not speak to them. So, you know, the, the way of asking that question can be framed differently. It can be, well, what does success look like for you? If this was, you know, if you did this, if you got there, what would success look like? So that's another good question. And then when people do start to work on problems more than aspirations, um, I do believe there are lots of prob- lots of solutions to every problem. Um, and it's helping them to think through the options. What are your options is a good question. Or what's stopping you? Mm. Or what's in your control and what isn't in your control are important. Because sometimes people are trying to grab hold of something that they can't control. And, and that's quite disempowering. So what is in your control is an important question. Um, and if they're expressing emotions like you know, anger or sadness or frustration or they're upset, then a good question is, what is it about this situation that's making you feel whatever it is that they're feeling? Um, or for me, whatever it is I'm feeling, what is it that's making me feel angry? Mm-hmm. To try and help me to unearth the real issues that I'm, I'm grappling with. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of the best ones that I use. And I think I've probably put those in the book somewhere, mm-hmm. threaded amongst it. Yeah. Well, there's lots of loads and loads of absolutely brilliant questions. I think those questions that help us understand what's going on and understand reality are so important, aren't they? Because until you understand what's really going on and why you're feeling like this or so angry about something or so upset about something, you, you've no idea what the best course of action is. And I guess that's why in any good coaching conversation, you spend a lot more time on the well, I tend to on exploring what's really going on. And then, but if you've done that properly, then actually actions are pretty obvious and clear, aren't they? <laughs> I think the thing about coaching, whether it's self-coaching or coaching that, that people maybe don't realize is that it takes, it takes quite a lot of effort on your part, not on the coach's part, on your, on your own part, because all the, you know, I think some people would love a magic bullet to solve their problems and, and to get everything done. And I think, I mean, we have that problem with with patients when they go to physio and they think that the physio is going to give them some sort of treatment that's going to cure all their ails. And suddenly mm. they're given all these exercises and then they have to go off and do these exercises in, if, in order to get better. And coaching's a bit like that. As you go along, perhaps expecting everything just to be magically sorted out, but you come away with far more actions than when you went in and you've got to really put the work in. So even though it's quite a joyous thing and actually can be very freeing because I think just being stuck in a situation and just not knowing what to do is, is really, really demoralizing, isn't it? But, but it does take a little bit of time and effort. And I think that with, even with self-coaching, you're going to have to put aside a little bit of time to do it and then make sure you've done your actions. So how, you know, how, how long would you suggest someone took for, would you, for a self-coaching session? Would you suggest they did the co- a, a whole self-coaching session or just do it in little bits? How do you normally suggest people do it? That's a great question, Rachel, because um, my answer is it's different for different people. Mm. And the reason for that is um, if you've only got 15 minutes to spare in the day where you can be totally by yourself with your devices switched off in a comfy place, whether that's on a park bench or probably not in the winter, but um, or sitting in your cozy armchair at home. If you can have 15 minutes with no distractions, that's better than half an hour with the kids running in and out, the dog barking, the postman at the door and all those and your 
bing bongs going on your computer and notifications on your phone, well, that's not going to work for you. You've got to be able to put everything else down and and really commit yourself to it. So when you said it's tough, it's tough for lots of reasons. It's tough because you have to commit and you've got to, um, it takes responsibility. You, you're taking ownership for your own life. You're basically saying to yourself, I'm going to sort this out and therefore I'm going to make an appointment with myself. I tell people to book an appointment in their calendar with themselves and under no circumstances can it be cancelled or postponed or rearranged. Make an appointment and stick to it as though it's your the highest level boss that's made that appointment, something you would not cancel. Um, and, and mark it as, you know, bright red or whatever color codes you use in your calendar that this is important and urgent and needs to be done. So um, I wouldn't be strict on the time, but it does need some time that's dedicated is more important than the actual length of time. For some people, they'll sit for an hour and they'll work the way through the template in the book and work the way through the questions. Um, and, and they don't have to be worked through logically either. They don't have to be in, in, um, in a particular linear way. You can um, mix and match and, and do the sections that, that you feel comfortable with to start with to get you going if you wish. One interesting client who's done self-coaching with the book, um, she said to me that, um, and she's a doctor, interestingly, but she said, um, well, I started off, I thought, this is my problem. I wrote it down as the topic for discussion. I started to work through the questions. And when I got to the bit that says, what does success look like? I wrote down a sentence with what success looked like for me. And I realized it wasn't the problem at all. Uh, I'd, I, yeah. I'd labeled the problem wrong. So I had to go back to the beginning and restate the problem. Um, and so it, that's how powerful it can be. That's the probably the most important thing she was able to do in that particular self-coaching session, that she was able to reframe the problem mm. in a way that um, meant she was going to reach the goal that she was, she was um, looking for. So that takes you all the way back to that first question. You said, what is it you're trying to achieve? Or you could reframe that as what problem are you trying to solve? Yes. Yeah, indeed. And that, that is straight from the improvement model. Mm. Um, because that's what you start with if you're doing your PDSA cycles and improvements. That's that's the first thing you need to to get right. Yeah. And and most people do coaching or self-coaching because they have a problem they want to solve or they're they're stuck or 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 you know, if everything if everything's going completely swimmingly, then then often people don't take up coaching or all this. But actually, you know, in today's, you know, VUCA world, we, we've all got issues and, and challenges, you know, no matter how well your job is going. And I think that sort of brings me to a, another question about coaching, because it's something that I, I think we haven't got hold of in the medical world. We think that coaching is for remediation, is for people who are really struggling, mm. it's for people who can't cope, you know, all that sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, in the, in the business world, I think they've, they've got a much better handle on it. You know, if you're a very senior executive, you'll nine times out of 10, you'll have a coach and you'll have someone that you, you go to, to talk stuff through. And of course, if you were a professional sports person, you would always have a coach because you just want to improve. So why do you think we've got it into our heads that coaching is just for people who are really having a bad time? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, 
Um, I'd say the majority of my clients now are not in healthcare at all. They're in um, big commercial global organizations. I, I have quite a lot of American clients and they often want me to work with what they call their, you know, their top talent, their top performers. So they're not saying work with this person because they're struggling or they're failing or they're saying work with this person because they're amazing and they're on the way to somewhere great and we want to you know, get everything we can out of this person and retain them in the company. Um, I think sometimes we are kind of tuned, we're honed in to focus on the negative. It's a it's a natural human protection mechanism, isn't it, for us to see see negative things so we can prepare ourselves and and avoid disastrous situations. But, you know, there are not many tigers out there about to eat us anymore. So we need to retrain our brain to think um, more about positive situations and not just about the bad things or the challenging things or the difficult things. So certainly in the book, I do say to people, don't spend all of your sessions on problems. Mm. By all means, do work on some problems, but also choose, um, you know, a big goal or a big aspiration, um, something that you're really excited about. You're much more likely to commit, actually, if it's something you're really excited about, um, because it's it's going to help you to feel that you're moving forward. It gives you that momentum. It motivates you to um, keep going with something and and to get to where it is, wherever it is you want to get to in life. So so I think we need to just encourage people more to do the aspirational things as well. I use a little um a little mnemonic ABC and I say to people um you need to work on an aspiration, a challenge or an experience and that those three things are different. And the experience can be a good or a bad experience to kind of understand what it is about that experience that made you feel what you felt. Um, so I say, don't spend all your time on B, which is the challenge. You know, make sure you spend some time on something you're aspiring to. And of course, we're coming up to that time of the year when everybody sets goals in January, don't they? And by the end of January, they're all gone. <laughs> so we know from some of the literature out there that people do not stick with goals that they make on January the 1st, you know, they want to lose weight or start running or, you know, eat more healthily or give up alcohol. We know that more people fail at that than succeed. Um, and often they're framed in quite a negative way. They're framed as something you want to give up or get rid of out of your life. And it's a very hard thing to change a habit so I guess with self-coaching, I, I say to people, it is a habit you need to create. And it doesn't really matter when you do it. If, if you know, Monday morning is your 15 minutes or your half hour of self-coaching, make it a habit. Do it every week. And after a while, you will start to become more skillful at it, just like any habit. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating what you said about you know, firstly, making it a habit, but secondly, focusing on the positives as well, because, you know, from all the sort of strength research and theory, we, we know that 
if you focus on developing your strengths, you are going to be much, much, you're going to get much more success than if you focus on developing your weaknesses. And like you said, if you focus on um, aspirations and, and goals and developing those, then you're going to be much more motivated to do it. You'll enjoy doing it and you'll have much more success than maybe if you're only focusing on overcoming problems and, and, and big slogs and, and, and all of that stuff. So really, really important to remember that. And I sort of have to remind myself that as well. And I like what you said about the habits, because I've I read a book recently that I really loved. It was um, called Free to Focus by Michael Hyatt. I don't know if you've come across any of his work. No, and, I'm going to write that down. Free yeah, to focus. He, he's very much about prioritization. And, you know, every day you're supposed to think through your day and set three priorities for the day and three priorities for the week and three priorities for the next 90 days. But it's this sort of review of the day before you do the day. And then sort of at the end of the week, you'll review the week and then you'll once every three months review your months. And I've been trying to sort of sit down in the morning and think, what is it that I really want to, to do today? And, and as a habit, it's been really helpful for me just to plan what I'm going to do, set my priorities. But actually, I'm thinking with, with your self-coaching workbook in front of me, planning to do one of these you know, once a week as well and, and use some of those questions in, in conjunction with that sort of prioritizing my my work plan, et cetera, is going to be really, really helpful. And I can see how powerful that would be. Yes. And I would say if you do think of a great question for yourself, write it down somewhere. It doesn't really matter where. Put it on a post-it and stick it on your computer. If you've got a, what am I trying to achieve or what does success look like? And it works for you as a question. Use it again and again with different problems, different challenges, different aspirations. Um, because we we like our own language and our own words, we we it resonates with us better than when someone else is saying it in a way that perhaps might not resonate quite so well. So write down the questions, even if you don't have the answer right now, write down the questions that you find helpful. And that will definitely get you started on coaching yourself. That's really good advice, Karen. What other top tips? If you had three top tips about how to get going with self-coaching, what would they be? Number one, commit. So book an appointment with yourself and don't um, don't cancel it. Don't rearrange it. Don't put it off. It's very easy to put these things off. We're very good at procrastinating with things that we're afraid of or things that we are not sure we know how to do, things that we think, oh, not sure it's going to be that helpful. So I'd say, number one, commit, make an appointment, put it in your calendar, write it on the wall, whatever you do with something that's important. Um, number two, I'd say be patient. As I said earlier, it is a skill that you need to learn. We need to learn. I'm still learning and I've, you know, I've done a lot of work on, on self-coaching and coaching and it's a lifelong skill and I get better at it and better at it the more I do it. So remember, it's a skill. And if you start, if you wanted to, if your goal was to run a marathon, you wouldn't run a marathon tomorrow. You might walk for 20 minutes to start with, and then you might run for five and walk for 15 and you'd build it gradually. So treat it like it's something that you're learning to do in the beginning. Um, and I'd say don't expect a life changing situation with the first time you do it. Expect to build on it, build on it and reflect on it and learn from it, particularly if you come up with a good question that you like in your own language, using your own narrative and your own words. 
Mm-hmm. And you'll find you're saying it to yourself. I, you know, I say these things to myself, even just because it's become a habit with me now. And it's really helpful when that happens. Um, so was that three things or two yeah. things? Like that, maybe... was, that was that was four or five, actually. Really, really. Was it? Okay. Amazing <laughs> advice. What's, um, Karen, what resources are out there to help people with this? With self-coaching or with coaching? Well, with, well I guess with, with self-coaching. Mm, I'm not really sure what's out there for self-coaching. There are a few books on the market, but um, one of the reasons why I wrote the book I did was because I found that the books out there, they're quite theoretical. They're quite a lengthy read and you can read them from beginning to end and not really know where to start. So they might not be very practical, but there are some books. If if you're the sort of person that likes to read, there are quite a few books now on self-coaching and coaching um and I quite I'm a tennis player so I quite like the sporting um co- coaching books on self and they are self-coaching so the um books like uh, Zen Tennis is a good one I love that uh, that talks about how you get in the right winning mindset and that applies to self-coaching you know a can-do mindset I can solve this I can sort this out or I can get to where I want to go is is a great mindset to develop mm. and th- there's quite a few sp- it depends what your sport is if you like sport there's plenty of coaching books that um, use sport as a backdrop to have the conversation and it makes it much more engaging than a textbook or, or a theory book. Mm. Those are great, great suggestions. Is it, there's a book called The Inner Game, I think. Inner Game, definitely of tennis. It's on my bedside table, actually. From... Uh, a, a book that I often recommend to sort of managers who want to take a coaching approach is called The, the Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay-Stania, which has yes. just got seven really key helpful questions to help you get into that habit of you know, asking those those coaching questions first, just before you you give advice. And of course, Karen, there is your book, which I think is is absolutely brilliant. And we'll put the it, it's still Thank available, you. presumably. People can get it. Yes, and it's still selling. It's selling really well. I'm I'm amazed at how well it's selling. Oh, it's a good it's a good book. That's why it's selling well. So we'll put the link in the show notes I, I, so people can get oh, hold of it you. and start to work through. And I'd thank recommend you. it because it's lovely templates and questions and you know, it's an awful lot cheaper than <laughs> a load of executive coaching that's sure. well I try to not make it theoretical so although it's underpinned with theory so underneath every paragraph there's a theory that you could back it up with that's you know usually from um, social sciences or psychology but I tried to make it one that was readable and not too theoretical right. yeah it's exciting I I keep looking and there's more copies sold I'm I'm amazed at how well it's how well it's sold in america and and in the uk yeah oh well congratulations and and so karen we nearly run out of time if people wanted to contact you get hold of you follow you on twitter how how can they do that they can follow me on twitter and and they can certainly dm me i i do look at dms that's at karen castile Mm -hmm. i think it is on twitter they can email me karen at karen castile.com lovely great well thank you so much for coming on Karen that's been really fascinating it's actually really encouraged me to sit down and do my own self-coaching sessions now I'm Good. definitely gonna Good. let me know how you get on Rachel I will do I will do yeah. I'll drop you I love I love to receive feedback yeah 
Yeah, 100%. And just encourage any of our listeners, you know, really give it a go. I think you'll be surprised about how powerful it is. And of course, if you if you are feeling stuck or if you have these aspirations and goals and you are able to access some one-to-one executive coaching, I'd really encourage you to do that as well if the chance is available to you. That's great, Karen. Thank you so much for being on and we'll get, have to get you back on the podcast soon to talk some more. Well, I'm writing another book, so maybe when I've done that one. <laughs> Fantastic. You're on. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.